Well, we're going to be in John chapter 15 tonight. We're making our way through John's gospel, and we are right in the middle of the farewell, farewell discourse. Um, Jesus is talking to his disciples as he's preparing to face the cross, and he's in these chapters that we find ourselves in right now, he, he's talking about how his disciples are to live in this world. And we're kind of listening in on that conversation because it, it's for us, just as it was for his original hearers. We're going to be in John 15, verses 1 through 17. Let's read it now. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As a father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is God's word. John's gospel includes seven I am sayings of Jesus. We've seen them so far. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And lastly, I am the true vine. One reason Jesus defines himself that way is because he's, he's affirming that he's the God of the Old Testament who's come to save his people. He's the Messiah. But he also says this because he wants us to know 
way deep down deep inside. Everything that he is for us. He wants us to know that he's a complete savior. He feeds and nourishes us. He enlightens and illuminates us. He lets us in. He welcomes us. He cares for us and tends to us. He restores us and redeems us. He leads us and he saves us. He sustains us and he grows us. Jesus is all the Savior any of us will ever need. He's everything. And our passage today confirms who Jesus is for us. And it also tells us what Jesus can do in us. It explains what it means to be a Christian. It's not about what we do for God, but about what God does for us. And we see in this passage the seventh and the final of Jesus' I am sayings. I am the true vine. And for 11 verses, he, he explains what that means. And then in verse 12, he, he seems to jump to a different subject. But there's this common thread of fruit bearing that appears again in verse 16, indicating these two paragraphs, though they, they may seem disconnected, are actually one unit. In verses 1 through 11, we see Jesus, the true vine. And in verses 12 through 17, we see Jesus, the true friend. We need both of those things. And he is both. He's the vine who will grow us and sustain us. And he's the friend who will be with us and for us. Bearing fruit in us. For his glory and for our joy. So I want to look at each one of these truths tonight. Jesus, the true vine. And Jesus, the true friend. We'll start with Jesus, the true vine. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine. What does Jesus mean? It's not a very common thing to say, right? Well, in the Old Testament it was. A vine was a recurring metaphor for Israel. Israel was God's vine. But Israel proved time and time again to be a bad one. They wouldn't open their heart to God. They wouldn't let him inside to do his gracious work in them. They wanted to be a nation like all of the other nations around them. That was not God's plan for them. God chose them. He, he brought them out to be a nation unlike the others. But because of their desire to be a nation like everyone else, God's purpose for them to be the, the, the conduit through which his grace would stretch out to the whole world, it, it didn't bear fruit. But of course, God planned for this. And his plan included sending the son, Jesus, who in the fullness of time came and became what Israel was supposed to be. He was the true vine that bore good fruit. Through him and in him, the world would find the grace of God pulsating into all his branches, through all of his people, through all of his churches, ushering in the kingdom of God that will never fail to have good grapes. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, the emphasis there is on the word true. He's the true vine because he's the true Israel. But Jesus says something more in verse 1. 
And this is interesting because this is the only I am saying that has an additional assertion tied to it. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. We not only have the true vine, but we also have a gardener who cultivates his vineyard in two ways, as Jesus says in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. A good gardener, I'm not one, but I hear these things. A good gardener, especially in a vineyard, will walk through that vineyard. He'll find branches that produce no fruit. And what does he do? Well, if there's no fruit on them, what good are they? All they're doing is just taking strength from the vine. So he cuts them off. They're worthless. But, but to leave them there, that, that's too costly. So he removes them. And then he goes and finds the branches with fruit. And if I were him, I'd think, well, there's fruit on there. I'm going to leave those alone. But no. Not if you want a, a healthy vine. Not if you want a good vineyard. It needs pruning. So he takes those branches that have fruit and he prunes them so they'll be even more fruitful. It's amazing to me. God designed gardening to work this way. It, it looks destructive, but pruning actually promotes growth. Now, this metaphor in, in Jesus' hands, it works on two levels. It's true of the church as, as a whole, and it's true of individual believers. Every branch that does not bear fruit in the church, unbelievers, he takes away. Judas is an example of a branch that was cut off. But it's also true that God cuts off branches inside of each of us. He removes the, the dead weight. He takes his knife and he lops off big, bad things. And he also prunes good things. The Greek meaning of pruning in verse 2, it's, it's actually kind of hard to translate into English. The idea is, is, is of cleansing. It's a cleansing act. And we actually do see that word clean in verse 3, where Jesus says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So he's saying there's something by the nature of our conversion to Christ, we are in a sense already pruned. But this pruning work is ongoing. It, it has to be that way, right? Because none of us come to Christ perfect. One of the ways God continually prunes us is through the word. That's why we read it. That's why we preach it. That's why we want to listen to it and be exposed to it constantly. I mean, we know experientially what this feels like, right? Think of the times when you're reading the Bible or you're sitting under the preaching of the word. And you see something, you read something, you hear something that just kind of cuts against the grain of who you are, of what you've always thought. And you let that word actually get inside of you. And you let it change you. And you didn't plan for this, but you, you kind of start rethinking your life. What's happening in those moments? God's pruning you. He's working inside of you. 
And yet we also know experientially that though we may already be clean, it it sure seems as if God has a lot of work to do in us, us, doesn't it? I mean, I I see it myself. I I am not as far along as I thought I'd be by this point. You know, there's an old adage in novel writing that says you must always keep your hero in trouble. It works really great in stories. And I think some of us probably feel like that's our life. We're just always in trouble. You know, for some of us, and and for all of us at certain times, we're in trouble because of our own sin, our own stupidity, our own failures. But some of us, it just feels like it's just hard. You know, why, why can't it just be easy? Why can't one day be easy? It just, we're stumbling into trouble. It just seems to be our lot in life. But, you know, I wonder if instead of waking up on a Monday morning thinking, what trouble is coming my way today? What if that trouble that comes is just God's pruning work in our lives? What if it's because God is deeply at work within us? The trouble that we feel is actually his pruning. Because he's a good gardener. He, he knows what he's doing. Even when we don't like it, he knows what he's doing. He's skilled. He's a professional. If you ever see a plant after a good gardener has gotten a hold of it, it looks like an absolute disaster. It looks like it's in trouble. But you come back later, and you see the, the beauty that has resulted from the pruning work. Our lives, Jesus is saying, they're like that in God's hands. That can sound harsh. It it can sound like God is, is, is intentionally being mean to us. But is he? I mean, do we really know what's best in our lives? I don't. But God does. And I think if you talk to anyone who's been a Christian for a while, they can bear witness to the fact that God can be trusted with his shears. They can tell you that God only cuts what would be a loss to keep. And he only cuts what would end up being a gain to lose. He knows what he's doing. He takes away just the right things at just the right time. And, and as we consider that, as we see that, as we kind of just mull that over, what we, what we find is we're, we're stumbling into the reality that is Christianity. This is what Christianity is. Other religions set the rules. They step back and says, get to work. But this is not who Jesus is. In Christianity, God comes down to you in Christ and he connects you to himself by the Spirit and he says gently and seriously, let me get to work in you. You are not left alone to figure out your spiritual life. Man, I'm thankful for that. You are attending to and guarded by your gracious and merciful God. And all he asks of you is what Jesus commands us in verse 4. 
abide in me and I in you. That word abide, that's a great word. It means what we think it probably means. It means to remain, to stay. But here's my favorite, to make your home. Isn't that amazing? Of all the things that Jesus could demand of us, he asks that we abide with him, that we make our home with him. And you got to think, who can't do that? Who can't just come to him and just be with him? But when we do try, we realize that it's, though it might be simple, it's not easy, is it? <laughs> it's not easy. You know, I was at the, the library the other day, and uh, there's this great room. It's just, it's a quiet room. And I have four kids, and my house isn't quiet. Nowhere I go is quiet. Going to that quiet room is amazing. And there's these chairs, and I sit down, and I can read a book. And I, I looked to my left, and there was this, this charging station. It kind of looked like this with all kinds of cords hanging out of it. And I was like, man, that's a great idea. I've seen them in airports as well. They're in other public places. And it, it's great, right? I mean, when your, your iPhone is dying and you need a quick recharge, there's something to help you. And you know, we can treat Jesus like that. We can treat Jesus like a charging station. We're thankful to have him when we need him. But he's just a stop along the way. We don't stay connected to him. He, he's, he's just an amenity. And, and when we start treating Jesus like that, no wonder our spiritual life doesn't really work. It wasn't meant to work that way. Abiding with Jesus is treating him as more than a charging station. Here's what Jesus is saying to us. Here's what he's offering to us. He is offering a life of full power all the time. He's offering all of himself for all of our needs all the time. He's offering it on terms of grace without any prerequisite, without us bringing absolutely anything at all to the table. He's offering a constant flow of his everlasting, empowering grace moment by moment for the entirety of our lives. And we plug into that life source by abiding with him, by making our home with him. <laughs> How can we say no to that offer? Jesus knows this is hard for us. That's why he tells us what to do. But he's so gracious to us. And he tells us what we need to know. And then when we fail and we just <laughs> prove that we don't get it, what does he do? He forgives us. When we grow bad branches, he cuts them off. When we're not as fruitful as we could be, he prunes us. He's making us, believe it or not, without even really asking us, he's making us 
into who we most deeply desire to be. Who wouldn't want to live in that kind of environment? Well, that's Christianity. It's Jesus working in you to make you like himself. And who is he? Well, he's, he's the only perfect human who's ever lived. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good journey. Abiding in Jesus is the home that we've been looking for all our lives. And this wonderful place of endless fruitfulness is ours for the taking. <laughs> in fact, you know, we make our home with Jesus. You know, really? Is there really any other home? Isn't he really the only true home? Everything else that may offer us a welcome is, it, it, I mean, we know this by now, right? It's just some mirage. It's a fake. It's a con. It might feel good for a little while, but it always lets us down. Even the greatest that this world can offer apart from Christ is only, it's, it's like a, a puddle on the shore of God's great ocean. One wave and it amounts to nothing. So why not instead just dive into the deep places of, of abiding with Christ? Our problem all too often is that we think we can get the same peace and the same assurance by other means. Abiding with Christ just doesn't seem like it's enough, does it? I mean, it sounds too easy in a way. So what do we do? We get busy. And what happens then? Well, we end up busy but barren. In verse 4, Jesus tells us as much. He says, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And then in verse 5, he says, apart from me, this is amazing. You can do nothing. Not something. <laughs> you can do nothing. We are not self-made Christians. We are grace-made Christians. Those are the only kind. We are Christ-made Christians. We are not planted, nor are we grown by ourselves. And we don't bear fruit on our own. We can't. Now all this talk about fruit, I mean, it, it appears, I don't even know how many times in the passage. What's Jesus talking about there? What is this fruit? I mean, it sounds good. We want to be fruitful, right? Well, what, what's he talking about? Well, we see a few aspects of what it might be in the passage. There's the fruit of effective prayer in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Then there's the ability to keep his commandments in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Then in verse 11, there's the experience of his joy. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then there's love for one another. In verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then in verse 16, there's the, the, the fruit of our witness, the fruit of our, our winning of the world to Christ. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And so what is the fruit? Well, well some say it's, it's obedience. And others say, well, no, it's, it's, it may be, but it's, it's really our witness. It's our evangelism. And I say, yeah, it's both, right? I think it's bigger than either one of those. It's, 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 it's both at the same time. It's, it's this whole life change. I mean, think of how Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? It's singular fruit, and then he goes on and lists all these words. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit is this entirely new heart. It's Christ-likeness. So if it's that, I mean, no wonder we can't do any of this on our own. I mean, we can try, but I know already I'm going to fail. No wonder he says we can't do anything apart from him. Our self-made fruit, it might look impressive, at least for a little while, but really it's just like the fake fruit that you find on coffee tables. One bite, and you know it's not the real thing. You can fake it with others. And I think we can even fake it with ourselves for a little while. But we can't fool God. And you know, even churches, whole churches can fall into this kind of trap of faking it. A church can look outwardly like they're doing the Lord's work. But if that church does not abide with Christ, It'll be like the church in Sardis that we see in Revelation 3. Jesus says to them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. We can't fool God. Francis Schaeffer said something that, that I think about all the time. We must do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Anything done in our own strength, even if it looks like this wild success, if it's done in our own strength, you know what that is? It's a massive failure. <laughs> and really all we have to know to see that is just give it time. But anything, done abiding in Christ, even if it looks like an absolute disaster. It's a wild success. And so the call to us tonight is, let's just be people and let's just be a church abiding with Christ, doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And, and you know, maybe that's not impressive. And, and not being impressive in this world we live in, in this part of the world we live in, is really difficult. Our reputation might be, I think they're dead. But if we're abiding with Christ, we are really alive. And we have Christ himself saying that. And so I just wonder... It, is that okay with us?
Will we take that deal? Because the alternative is a life we don't want to live. Jesus says in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Fruitless branches are cut off and burned. That's all they're good for. But abiding with him, I mean, do you see? He's he's not saying you might get some fruit. (laughs) You might turn out okay. He's saying you will be fruitful. Not because we've figured it out, but because we're connected to the life source himself, to the true vine. Abiding with Christ is the only way to true success. I want to to point out one more thing before we move on. Look at verse 9. I I think verse 9 is, is, it's, it's kind of the glue that holds a lot of this together for us. It's an amazing verse that if it wasn't in the Bible, we wouldn't believe it. What's the foundation of everything Jesus is saying to us here? Where does this come from? Why would God prune us at all? Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so, I, so have I loved you. <laughs> Abide in my love. Man. Jesus loves us with the same love with which the Father loves him. Even if we don't know what that is exactly, that's a love we've never, bigger than we can even imagine, right? There's no deeper, truer love than that. That the foundation of God's gardening work is his deep love for us. So when it hurts, we got to remember this. When we're not sure what God is doing, we've got to remember this. Jesus is asking us to make our home there. Where? In his love. In his love. Why would we not be willing to do that? Even if it hurts sometimes, even if we don't understand it all, knowing what we know, how can we not trust him now? When has Jesus proven untrue? When has he not come through for you? What in him is untested at this point? And when did he prove untrustworthy? He hasn't. So that's Jesus, the true vine. Now let's think about Jesus, the true friend. Verses 12 through 17. Now, John 15, verse 12 is a verse that if we would take it to heart, it would transform our age, as it would transform any age. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The true vine, it turns out, is also our true friend. Abiding in Christ grants more than growth. His love brings us inside that sacred circle of friendship with the living God. And his love, 
it changes us. What does it change us into? Well, it, it changes us into lovers too. Love one another as I have loved you. And, and so we've got to think, okay, well, how does he love us? Verse 13 tells us, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, that wasn't just a nice saying to Jesus. He knew in the moment he said it that that was soon to be his reality. The cross was coming. In fact, he was walking straight to it. Knowing the hell of the cross. This is amazing to me. Knowing the hell of the cross, Jesus told you, his friend, yeah, I'll do that for you. Jesus loves you to death. He loves you sacrificially. He left heaven to come and live the perfect life that you couldn't live and to die the guilty death that you deserve to die so that you could have new life in him, so that you could bear spiritual fruit if you just accept the offer. (laughs) On the cross, I mean, think about this, on the cross, talking about branches here. On the cross, he was, as it were, cut off so that you wouldn't have to be. So that now in him, you are only pruned. So when we get to verse 14 and we read, you are my friends if you do what I command you, we can receive it the way he really means it. He's not telling us how to make him our friend. He's telling us what proves we are his friends. When you see fruit on a branch, you don't wonder if it's connected to the vine. You know it is. The fruit is the proof. Our obedience proves that we are we're connected to him. That we are his friends. It doesn't make us his friends. It just proves who we are. Verse 15 gives even more insight into what friendship with Jesus means. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus is saying there's, there's a difference between a servant and a friend. A servant, which really the, the meaning there is slave. The, the, the servant they're told what to do, but they're never told why, right? They're, they're not invited into that conversation. And Jesus could treat us that way. I mean, he has every right to. He's the Lord. But he doesn't treat us that way. Instead, he invites us into the conversation. He reveals to us the plan, the mystery of the gospel. He tells us where this world is headed, where he's headed, and where we are headed with him. Jesus lets us in on his plans and his purposes, just like a friend would. Isn't that amazing? We know how the story ends. This ought to melt our heart with gratitude. But you know, it can also have the opposite effect sometimes if we're not careful. We can can puff up with pride because we know more. 
Oh, we know our Bible. We can attach more importance to ourselves than we should, as if, as if we deserve that knowledge, as if we're better than others because of it. So I think to make sure that we don't get too high and mighty on ourselves, Jesus reminds us in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I think that's both a, a mild rebuke and a deep encouragement with the emphasis on the encouragement. Our standing as friends of Jesus Christ is not based on anything we have done. It's not based on anything we are currently doing. It's not based on anything that we will do in the future. It is based on him and his choice. You know, it's not even, it's not even based on us reaching out to make him our friend. No, it's, it's based on his sovereign, his electing grace. We did not choose him. He chose us. And he chose us for a purpose. And, and I think this is, this is so dignifying. Jesus, he did not choose us for a life of mediocrity. He did not choose you just to get by. He did not choose you just to make your life a little bit more tolerable. He chose you for glory. It's so easy for us to think of ourselves, ourselves too highly, but it's, it's also easy, I think, for us to think of ourselves as too lowly. And, and the gospel is the answer to both. We're not so great that we don't need saving, and we're not so bad that we can't be saved. We haven't done anything so great to deserve his attention, and we haven't done anything so poorly to disqualify ourselves from his attention. You see that? I mean, that's amazing. So if you tend to see yourself as too low, as I often do, I, I fall into self-pity. It's just another form of pride, but it's on the opposite end of the spectrum. If you're like me in that way, you need to know that Jesus chose you to be his friend. And you need to know that you are not basically a problem for him to solve. You are a divine strategy that he aims to use. Your life matters to him and he means to use you Little old you for his glory, for his mission in this broken world. And verse 16 says as much. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask of the, of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In other words, Jesus chose you. One reason, because he's chosen others as well. And your friend Jesus is asking you to go be friends with his friends. To invite them into this glorious thing that we call Christianity. Friendship with him. And to give us even more confidence, because he knows that's going to be a hard ask. He tells us that whatever we ask the Father in his name, he will give to us. Now, 
You can use that the wrong way. People have used that the wrong way. But the context is key. It always is. Jesus isn't saying we can ask for whatever we want generally, like, I'd like a Maserati. That's not what he's saying. We can ask for whatever we need in Christ specifically. As we abide with him and go out to bear fruit for him, through a life devoted to him, and we, we, we just we run into some need that only he can meet. Here, here's what he's saying. Why don't you ask the Father in my name for that? And he'll give it to you. He will provide. That's the kind of friend we have in Jesus. He's one who stands by us always. He's one who provides for us. He's with us and he's for us. So when Jesus says in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another, we know that the place from which he says this has the power of his love behind it. It's a love that's as deep as the cross and as glorious as the resurrection. And our love is based on his love. And his love is as big as it gets. So why not abide there for our whole life? I can't think of a better place. Now I want to end with a story that I think puts feet on this a little bit. It shows us what it looks like to abide in Christ. It's a story from Corey Ten Boom. She lived in Nazi-occupied land during World War II. And she and her family were sent to a concentration camp because they were hiding Jews in their house. Her father was killed and her sister Betsy died in the camp. But Corey survived. And one day after the war, I think I've used this illustration before. I love it so much. One day after the war, she spoke on forgiveness at a church. And afterward, a former guard from the concentration camp came forward to greet her. Can you imagine? Here's what she said about that day. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never any questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. 
Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men in their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, spraying into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did that. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. That's what abiding in Christ looks like. Corey was already clean by the washing of the word. But she was pruned that day into something she never imagined possible. 
to bear the fruit of forgiveness to a man who didn't deserve it. Just as she didn't deserve her father's forgiveness. That's the kind of God, gardener that God is. Isn't he good? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. for your graciousness, for your mercy, for all that you are for us, for who you are in yourself. Lord, I pray that we would learn more and more what it means to abide in Christ, to make our home there, and that we would never want to leave. Father, I, I know us, and I know that Maybe just moments from now, we will seek something else. So, Lord, do your work in us. You supply everything we need. We pray this in Jesus' name.